Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all the foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law and the law and the Lord their God for a quarter of the day, that's three hours, and for another quarter of it they made confession and worshipped the Lord their God. On the stairs of the Levites stood, he named six different people, and they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. Then the Levites, and he named some other ones, said, Stand and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. You are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their host, the earth, and all that is on it the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them, and the host of heavens worships you. Father, again, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how it instructs us, that it convicts us, that it changes us and transforms us. And Father, I just pray that we would be teachable, that we'd be quick to receive what you have for us today, especially as we're looking at this whole area of revival Not only a revival of a people named Israel and Jerusalem, but may we draw principles out of this text as far as how we may personally be revived. Sometimes, Lord, the walk with you gets hard. And sometimes we even shake our fist at what you're doing in our lives. And I pray that you'd give us humility, that you would give us insight, that if there are areas in our life that need to change, and they need to change dramatically, and they need to change today, that that would happen. Help us not to just think about what your word says, but to actually be not only hearers, but doers. And so we ask that you would help us as we seek to get through this entire chapter today. That you might be glorified, that we might be built up, so that we might glorify you even more. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. If you'd like, again, to turn to your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 9, <clears throat> we're going to do something I don't usually do. Two things, actually. Get through a whole chapter and read it for you. Uh, now, again, we've been in this book, and last week I had a, a, a real bad cold, and now I just have a little bit of a sniffle. Hopefully that won't bother you. Actually, I feel great until I start talking. <laughs> get a little scratchy throat. But what we're doing is, the wall's been done 52 days. The, the, the people basically say, we want the word. <laughs> That's chapter 8. Ezra comes out, Ezra the priest comes out and starts reading. Six hours. Think about that, six hours. Let's start now and we'll end at five. They start reading the book, the Bible. It says in uh, chapter 8, verse uh, 3, no, excuse me, uh, chapter 8, verse uh, 9, do not mourn or weep. Why? Because they were mourning and weeping. They had heard, they were hearing what the Word of God said they needed to do and how they had failed, and they wept. But it was the seventh month. It was supposed to be the Feast of Trumpets. He said, no, don't weep right now. 
Let's do what the Word of God says and go into the Feast of Trumpets and then a few days later the Feast of Tabernacles, which is seven days of rejoicing. So that's chapter 8. But now we come back to part of this revival. And they come back to the Word of God and it says again in chapter 9 that it's the 24th day of this month, which is the seventh month. So this is about three weeks later from the beginning of chapter 8, verse 1. And again, we saw a few weeks ago that Nehemiah did not manipulate the people's emotions. See, sometimes when you have a person crying and weeping and mourning, okay, let's, let's get confession out right now. That's not what he did. He just said, no, no. We are to go into a time of rejoicing. By the way, if it's a true work of God, you don't have to rush it. <laughs> because God's Spirit is working. But there are moments when you have to say, now's the time as far as uh, to confess, and, and this is what we're going to be looking at today. What we really want to talk about is this. How do you experience a personal revival? One man wrote this about revival. Revival is not some emotion or worked-up excitement. It is an invasion from heaven. I like that. It is an invasion from heaven that brings a conscious awareness of God, end quote. An invasion from heaven. You can't manufacture a revival. That's why I always get a kick out of when people say, you know, revival meeting's coming. Only God can bring revival. By the way, it doesn't mean that you can't pray for revival in your own heart. Lord, break me. Make me repentant. Make me teachable. Make me to be a person that wants to receive your word. Help me to be sensitive to what your spirit's doing in my life. I mean, those are all preparatory. But the actual revival comes from God. Now again, the word revival doesn't even appear in Scripture, actually. Uh, revive appears in Scripture. We may look at that next week a number of times, especially in the Psalms. Revive me, O God. You know, psalmist is crying out, Revive me, O God. Bring new life into me. He, he's not saying, by the way, you know, save me again. Just like when David, after the sin of Bathsheba, Psalms 51, he said what? Restore unto me the joy of my salvation. Do you feel like that today? Do you ever feel like, you know, wow, this Christian walk, it's, you know, it's called a race, it's called a war. <laughs> we have to fight. And sometimes we get really tired. And sometimes in the midst of getting tired, we forget that our, our energy, our strength is in the Lord. And we try to do it on our own, which only makes it worse. <laughs> and before long, you almost feel like you're crawling up that hill, that mountain, with your fingertips. Well, you could cry out, Lord, revive me. What are, you, what are you saying? Restore unto me the joy. I remember back when I was, you know, maybe 20 years ago, 10 years ago, 5 years ago, a month ago, whatever you might say, and say, I remember when there was a freshness, a sweetness to my relationship with you. Lord, that's what I want. But Lord, I know that because my heart is deceptive and deceitful and I'm a sinner and I have a tendency to, as we've been studying in uh, ABF, live for my own kingdom. Lord, I'm placing myself before you as a living sacrifice. And I want you to show me what I need to change. That's what leads to revival in a person's life. When a person breaks and says, you know what? I want what you want for me, and I will listen. (laughs) 
So revival is an act of restoring life to the person that's in decline. But when I mean life, I mean the vibrancy. I don't mean life from death. I'm just saying there's a sweetness. There's a intimacy. There's a wholehearted wanting to obey the Lord. There's a refreshment. There's almost like an awakening. <laughs> now, our passage actually is uh, Nehemiah 9, but 1 Corinthians 10 says this. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, New Testament says, Now, these things happened to them, that's the Israelites, as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the age has come. So Israel went through things that Paul says we can learn from Israel. And this is one of the main passages we can learn as far as on revival. This is the greatest revival, I believe, in the, in the Old Testament concerning Israel. This is, this is like the peak. And then from there, 400 years till Christ comes, it kind of goes, keeps sliding down. And by the way, that is how you're going to see revival. Revival is not a one-day, one-event thing in your life. It's a constant. Because no matter how you feel like right now, yeah, praise God, I want to walk with Him, I can guarantee you, just take a, a, a few hours, a, a few days, a, a, maybe a, a month, and you will be wandering unless that intensity stays focused on Christ, right? It's just, uh, what is that old, uh, old song, you know, so prone to wander, prone to leave what? The God I love. So this is so prone. We're all prone to do that. So we're going to look at uh, Israel. They were prone also. We can learn some things from, from them. Now, again, the first thing we saw is that they heard the word of God for six hours. Then they went into the feast. Feast of trumpets, feast of tabernacles, different times. But the idea is joy. But they heard the word. The first big thing about a true revival is they hear the word. They hear the word. They understand the word. By the way, that's why, if, have, did any of you ever do Colossians 2-7 series? 2-7. Anybody raise your hand? Okay. 2-7 was a whole six or eight, ten weeks. But one of the last things that you had to do in the 2-7 series was this. You had to have a, take a half day of prayer. And, and, and whenever, you know, when you first open the book, half day of prayer, half day, almost like you, you know, like started to hyperventilate. How, how am I going to get through a half day of prayer? Well, it turned out to be four hours, half day being eight, half just get away, you know, take a journal, read the book, Bible. Just focus. I, I've had more people, including myself, say that was one of the most refreshing times in my life. How many of you would say that if you took 2-7? Would you say that? That was most... All right, what happened? Think about it. What was so, what was so uh, profound about that time? You took time to have God speak to you through the book. With no interruptions, because you said, I have four hours, you know. I'm sure when you started, like, huh? And, it, and I'm sure when you finished, many of you thought, like, wow, that was quick. But the point was, you got into the Word, and you weren't in a rush to get out of it. Because you had four hours. I mean, why do kids come back from camp so often, so energized, only to not be energized maybe three months later? Because at camp, what did they do? Counselors told them... We want you to get your Bibles and go find a tree and you have to be there, what, for a half hour. What was, what was happening there? Was it profound that I was at Bethany Camp because that's where I used to go, Bethany Camp? No, it was profound in the sense that I was told you have to stay there and you have to get into the book. 
wish we could get, convince ourselves we need to be in the book. And when we do, we need to not be rushed. It's the rushing that sometimes we've, that um, deters true revival in our heart. So what we're going to see is chapter 8, again, was getting into the book, reading the book. Now, chapter 9 is sorrow over the sin after reading they saw how far short they fell from God's standard. Sin and repentance, chapter 9, and then cha- and chapter 10 is going to be actually uh, a covenant. They actually are going to sign a covenant saying, we will follow God, and we're going to look at that next week. So let's look at the preparation, and I, I've read this uh, already, again, in verse 1, the 24th day of the month, uh, they were... Uh, fasting they, with sackcloth and, and earth on their heads. And what, all that says is that they were humble. <laughs> their hearts were prepared. And, and you see their hearts being prepared in chapter 8. We see it now again in chapter 9. Uh, they had just finished the ta- uh, Feast of Tabernacles, which meant seven days of rejoicing. Their hearts were prepared. But I find it interesting that before the confession of chapter 9, they went through a time of great rejoicing over the Lord in chapter 8. Sometimes we think they can only be like this. Oh, you've got to confess before you rejoice. No, what they saw is God is big, went, went right into confession of sin. So their heart was... Uh, prepared. Verse 2, and the Israelites separated themselves from all the foreigners. And MacArthur says that that probably refers primarily to marriage. They were intermarrying uh, foreign women, foreign men. Now, I only say that for this. That means there was great sacrifice. I think we think we can walk with God without sacrifice. You want to walk with God, there has to be sacrifice. They separated from all foreigners and stood. There's an uncomfortableness. There's a respect and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. So they weren't only confessing their own sins, but also the iniquities of the fathers. Look at verse 3. And they, again, in their place and read from the book of the law, the Lord their God for a quarter of a day. That's three hours. They confess and they worship. I mean, you can see they're, they're, they're moving towards even greater revival. And then the Levites stood up. And this is the public prayer. And this is probably the longest prayer in the Bible. But look at what they say. Stand up, verse 5, and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. And, and the word bless, I think, appears 140 sometimes. 35 or 140 a lot. And this morning I was just going through it and trying to find, you know, how does the word bless usually used? And like when you say bless the Lord, and when it was referring to the Lord, every time I looked it up, it was always in the intensive. As I often tell you in Hebrew, the PL. In other words, it was intensive. It was intentional. Bless the Lord. You don't go to the Lord like, you know, well, you know, you're really great and you're the creator. Bless the Lord. Get focused. In the Psalms, bless the Lord. There was intensity. We should come with intensity when it comes to... And that's how the, um, that's how the Levites demanded, as it were, stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed, those are all in the PL, all the intensive. Be your glorious name, which is exalted. PL, above all else, the intensive. When you, when you bless the Lord, make sure it's with intensity. 
Make sure it's with intentionality. <laughs> you know, we're not just here bumbling around. No, this is the Lord. Is that true? By the way, the worship should be the best. Shouldn't be, and by the way, you know, when, when we're worshiping, it's not who's listening to me, and, and hopefully nobody up here is doing their part and saying, oh, who's watching me? It's not about us, right? It's about the Lord. So, bless the Lord. In, in the Old Testament, 130 sometimes, it's in the intensive. Every time it's bless the Lord, it's the intensive. When you're home and you get depressed and you get wayward, bless the Lord. <laughs> Do it with intensity. And, and by the way, we're going to see, we're gonna, I'm going to read it to you because it's so great as far as all the different components of how we can bless the Lord. And then in verse 6, he starts out by talking about the, the greatness of God. And it's all got to do with creation. The creation. Verse 6, you are the Lord, you alone. You made the heaven, the, the heaven of heavens with the, all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the sea and all that is in them. The creator, you're the creator. And not only are you the creator, but you're the, you preserve all of them. And the host of heaven worships doesn't worship this God and that God and that God and that God. Well, the false, I mean, creation does do that, but they're all false gods. But, no, no, the heavenly host worships you. The host of heaven worships you because they know you are the true God. So we find in verse 6 that he is the unique God. He made heaven and earth. In other words, he's the creator. He's the preserver. Therefore, all worship is due him. And you're going to, in this passage, you're going to see you. I think it's 30 times. You. See, it's not just kind of, you are this and you are that. It's, it's just very encouraging as I've read this over and over again the last few weeks. I mean, you, Lord, are this. You're the creator. And not only do you the creator, you sustain us. And if it wasn't for you, Lord, we would just, you know, explode. Literally, that's what the end of the earth, uh, end of the world. And everything that is, that's good in me is you. You're the one, therefore, to get worship. It should be easy to worship the Lord. And yet, because we live for ourselves and deceitful hearts, it isn't. The other word I'm going to uh, point out before we get started, I mean, as we start reading verse 7, is the word give. Warren Wiersbe says this, the word give is used in one way or another at least 16 times in this chapter. So our God is not only a good God, but he's a giving God. He gives, and He gives, and He gives, and He gives. He gives grace for life. He gives grace as far as to sustain. He gives grace so that we might be able to grow. He gives, He gives, He gives, He gives. Well, let's look at the goodness of God, this giving God that we have. He's so good that when we were condemned in our sins, He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, to die for our sins so that we could be forgiven. Of all in creation, He's the greatest giver, right? And by receiving Christ, you can be forgiven. He's a giver, and He gives the fact that invitation to be able to be part of His family. What you find in chapter seven or uh, chapter nine, seven through thirty-one is really just a review of Israel's history, and a lot of this I'm just going to read. Okay, follow along. I, I'm using the ESV, but this is a great review. Now, this chapter is about about Israel's confession. I think that's what I even put as the outline. 
Israel's confession. They, they're confessing. But no, notice that they only confess a few verses. What really is happening is this. They are lifting up God. And every time you lift up God, it puts you in the right perspective. So they keep lifting up God. You alone are the creator. You alone are the preser- preserver of all creation. You alone should get worship. They keep lifting God up. And the higher you lift God up in your life, now you are put into true perspective. And periodically in this narrative, you're going to find that they confess their sin. But the big thing isn't about just confession. Like if I say, well, have you confessed your sin? The, the, the majority of that will be lifting God up because he's high and lifted up. So look at the first part, verse 7. Notice the you's now. Okay, this is the call of Abraham. You are the Lord, the God, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldees and gave him the name Abraham. By the way, you find all that in chapter 12. You found his heart faithful before you and made with him the covenant. That's Genesis 15. To give to his offspring the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Zebuzites, and the Gershites. Wow, a lot of ites. And you have kept your promise for you are righteous. Now they're confessing, but they're confessing how great God is. You know, I find this interesting. It says... Uh, the middle of uh, verse 8, to give to his offspring the land. Unless verse 6 was correct, verse 8 would be a thief. See, what is he saying? You gave that land to the Israelites. What do you mean you gave? Well, only if Psalms 24 is correct can he be righteous in giving the land. In other words, what does Psalm 24 say? The earth is the Lord's and all that, all its fullness. This is, this is something we have to really, you know, that's why evolution would be so much against God. Not only against God as creator, but against his glory. No, God created everything, including the land of Israel. So when he decided to take from the Hittites and give it to the Israelites, that was fully within his realm. Why? Because he's the creator. He's the one that created it in the first place. So you did all this. And by the way, this call of Abram or Abraham is really where you see election. That's, the, that's a, the, one of the first mentions of election. You decided to do this of your own free will. You know, it says that one part. It says you found his heart faithful. I think of 1 Timothy 1 verse 12. It says, I thank him this is Paul speaking of Christ, who has given me strength. Paul says, I, you've given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. And you say, well, you mean, was Paul faithful in and of himself? No, because he had, he had previously said that he was uh, insolent, he was a blasphemer. <laughs> you know. But what is uh, verse 1? He says, I thank him who has given me strength. See, if, if God can count you faithful, you know why he can count you faithful? Because he gave you strength ahead of time. All glory goes to him. Sometimes I think we think that we have done it on our own. No, no. He, he counted me faithful by giving me strength. He gave me strength, and that's why I was faithful. Are you faithful to the Lord? Have you experienced not only his salvation, but his strength in your life? Or are you, again, trying to go it on your own? So verse 7 and 8 is the call of Abraham. Look at verse uh, 9. This is the deliverance from Egypt. And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea. 
and perform signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all the servants and all the people of his land. For you knew that they, were, they acted arrogantly against our fathers. And you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. And you divided the sea before them so that they went through the, in the midst of the sea on dry land. And you cast their pursuers into the depths of the, as a stone into the mighty waters. I love that. <laughs> Again, it just started hitting me how many times the word you, you. And every time you see the word you, it's like this. He's lifted up higher and higher and higher. That's, that's how it should be. If you, if you want true revival in your life, it has to be that God is seen as big. He is great. He is mighty. In fact, he's going to say that in a moment. So that's them getting them out of Egypt. Uh, verse 12 starts the provision in the wilderness. So he takes them out of Egypt. And verse 12, by a pillar of cloud, you led them in the day. By the way, that cloud not only, um, not only was for guidance, but for protection. It divided them against the Egyptians at an earlier moment. And by a pillar of fire in the night to light for them the way in which they should go. You came down. That's the revealer on Mount Sinai. In other words, if he didn't come down, we wouldn't know. Unless God reveals himself, we cannot find out who God is. And spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws. Good, which means pleasant statutes and commandments. You're the one that did that. By the way, that word good, that word pleasant... um, I think of 1 John where he says, and your commandments are not burdensome. Do you you look at the word of God, his laws, his ways, his paths as pleasant? Or do you kick against them? You know, oh, I have to be faithful to people. I have to be loyal. I have to to worship you. It's so hard, Lord. (laughs) Or do we find it as pleasant, good, Good statute, good commandments. Verse 14, And you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes and a law by Moses your servant. By the way, the word Sabbath, you gave the Sabbath. But remember, the Sabbath was given for man. The Sabbath was so that people, the Israelites, could rest. God calls us, not in the Sabbath form, but God calls us the same thing. You know, if you try to make every day, seven days a week, the very same, you're going to burn out. You need rest, right? By the way, we know that by every day. 11, 12 o'clock at night, or maybe for some of you, 8 o'clock. You're like, why does he make... You know, some of us feel like, wouldn't it be great if he just made us so we could work 24 hours in a day? Why Why do we need rest? Because every time you lay down, you need to remember, you know what? I am fragile. I am not limitless. Only God is. God doesn't sleep or slumber, but I need to. Okay? And so he gave, that was, that was out of his good pleasure, the Holy Sabbath, and commanded them commandments. In verse 15, you gave them Bread from heaven, that's the manna for their hunger and brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst. And you told them to go and to possess the land that you had sworn to give them. What, what do we see here? His provision, his protection, his revealing. He, he's the father that, that looked after the nation. He's a good God. That's what we need to come out of this with. He's a good God. Well, look at this, verse 16. The first disappointment... The wandering in the desert. 
Uh, and this is really the appointment of a captain at Kadesh Barnea. You see this in Numbers 14. But they. <laughs> this is where, almost like you're, you know, but they. You were so faithful. God, you were so faithful. You, you gave them everything they needed. They were so, you, were, you were so good. But they, and our fathers acted presumptuously. It means proudly. The li- it literally means to seed, kind of like, I'm not going to do it. And stiffened, stiffened, hmm, hardened. In other words, stubborn. Stiffened their neck. You know, have you ever had a stiff neck? Stiff neck, you know, you get a cold and it goes into your neck and then you're trying to drive. You're, in fact, you shouldn't drive that way. You know, you're like this. But the idea is that it's not pliable, not able to look in a different direction. That's how the Israelites did. They, they stiffened, their, they hardened, they, they were not willing to bow to authority. You know, in a spiritual sense, what that means is this. Sometimes we hear God, we even know what he wants, but we're not willing to turn. We're not willing to move. No, no, this is me. This is who I am. I'm talking to the sinful. And that's what they were like. And did not obey your commands. Verse 17, they refused. By the way, that's one of the few times in this passage the intensive PL is again used. They refused. When, they, when it says they refused, they, it means like this. They knew the truth. They were told the truth. They had just seen the miracle of getting them out of Egypt. And they were going to go into the, the land. And they refused. Kind of like the line, I'm not going. I will not listen. But it's a great land. It's a good land. We're like grasshoppers. But they stiffen their neck. Excuse me. They refuse to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. If you have it that way or something like that, you should underline that. Isn't that interesting? They appointed a leader to bring them back into slavery. Now think about that. And that's exactly what we do when we stiffen our neck and we throw our hand up against God and what he wants to do in your life. You're appointing a leader to bring you back into your own slavery. See, God is a good God. He wants to remove the slavery from you. He wants the best for you as one of his children. No, Lord, I will not listen to what your word says. Stiff neck, refuse to obey. That's why when Stephen was being uh, uh, stoned, and he looked at the leaders that were ready to throw the stones, and he said this, You stiff neck people, uncircumcised and hard in ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. That's very insightful on Stephen's part. By the way, remember what we read earlier in this chapter? For three hours they were listening. They were reading through, I'm assuming, the Pentateuch. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They were hearing all this. And now this is just a summary. I hope you're not stiff-necked. By the way, is it true that God will win? I mean, let's say it this way. Will God win over your life? Isn't it easier just to say capitulate up in the front end? How many of you had to like, go through the ditch many, many times? Yeah, I better not confess. Yeah. 
Yeah. Wow. Ran through the briar bushes. Look at verse 17. But you are a God ready to forgive. That's pardon. You're gracious and merciful. That's compassionate. Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And did not forsake them. You didn't forsake them. By the way, the word mercy appears over and over again in different words, different forms. But the whole thing goes back to the idea of mercy. You're merciful. You have pity on those who go off the path. In fact, Jonah, if you uh, just write this down, Jonah chapter 4. Remember Jonah, you know, first of all, he runs. Okay, I'll go back, you know. Word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. I'll go back, you know, preach repentance. Finally, they do repent. You know, that should be the greatest day in Jonah's life. I preach truth and they heard it. No, he's angry. And in verse 2 of the last chapter, chapter 4, verse 2, it says, And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. I knew you were a good God, and I am ticked about it. Because we're always ticked about it when it's affecting one of your enemies, in Jonah's case. By the way, there's a lot of words that are found in verse 17 of Nehemiah 9 that were also used by Jonah. It just kind of says, you know, this is who our God is. He's compassionate, he's merciful, he is gracious, he is ready to pardon. And he is ready to pardon you at this very moment. See, some of you, I believe, I mean, a group this size, there has to be some who have been walking that wayward path. You're a Christian, you receive Christ, but you've been kicking your, the dirt in his face and his word. Just know that he is gracious. Let me read verse 17 again. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. And he won't forsake us, right? But you know what? But then why not just stay in my state? Because it's going to be a real hard life. (laughs) No, no, no. It's great to walk with Jesus. Restore unto me the joy of, my, of your salvation. Well, he gives another incident. This is the golden calf. Even when they made the, for themselves a golden calf. And then they said this, this is, your, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt. I mean, they actually looked at the golden calf and said, it wasn't this Jehovah over here. This is, what, this is who brought you up out of Egypt. Which is, how foolish is that? We made it? And then... subscribing to it the power to take us out of Egypt and it committed great blasphemies why? because they worshipped it you and your great mercies there again mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness the pillar of uh, cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way by which they should go it is true that he never forsook them but also remember that many died There was great chastisement, great punishment towards them. Great discipline. Many died. So it's not like everybody came out unscathed. But but God remained faithful to his people. Verse 20, For uh, you gave your good spirit to instruct them, and did not withhold your manna from their mouth, and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them. That's in the intensive. That's one of the six 
verbs, I believe, uh, in the intensives. They, you sustain them in the wilderness, and, and they lack nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, and their feet did not swell. Because when, you're, when God is protecting, and again, you say, well, he's protecting, they all died. They were 20 below, or 20 above, except for two, Joshua and Caleb. But still, God provides. He's still patient, even with the sinner. By the way, that word, and they lacked nothing, is from Psalms 23, is also used when it says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I'm not going to want. I don't need to want. That word want, lack nothing. In other words, when the Lord's my shepherd, and I know the Lord's my shepherd, and I walk with the Lord as my shepherd, I'm not going to want. Lord, whatever you want for me is what I want. Now he moves into another part of Israel's history, the conquest of Canaan. And you gave them kingdoms. By the way, you can only give them if you're the creator. But you gave them kingdoms and peoples allotted to them every corner so that they took possession of the land. Sihon, uh, king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, king of Bashan. Uh, You multiplied their children as the stars of heaven. And you brought them into the land that you had told their fathers to enter and possess. Do you see what they're doing? And the good things of our life are because of you. Can you say that? Not just salvation, but everything that you have, even the material things that you have. Or somehow has pride snuck in and you've become a self-made man. That is so dishonoring to the, the one who literally owns it all. And for us in America, we have a lot. Right now, at least, this, this, this year we have a lot, 2014. Do we actually see it all from the hand of God? Job did, and that's why when much of it was taken away, he was able to say that he still blessed the Lord. So the descendants went in and possessed the land, and you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land. So he didn't give the credit to the Israelites. He said, you did this, the Canaanites, and gave them into their hand with their kings and the people of the land, that they might do with them as they would. And they captured four or five cities and rich land and took possession of the houses full of all good things. Cisterns already hewn. <laughs> you didn't even have to dig them. Vineyards, olive orchards, and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate. By the way, that word is devour. And they filled. That means to satisfaction. And became fat and delighted themselves in the good, your, your great goodness. That's the goodness of God. And part of, the, of having a true uh, revival in your own heart is to see the goodness of God in your life. Because is, is it easy to uh, complain and whine and get frustrated with God and others? One commentator said this, They delighted in, the, in God's gifts, but they forgot the giver. And that is a common human tendency, I believe. In other words, we prize the Lord's blessing more than we love the Lord himself. Well, verse 26 to 31 is now the judgment period, the judges, book of Judges. Nevertheless, I mean, God, you were so good. Nevertheless, they were disobedient, rebelled against you, cast your law behind their back, killed your prophets. We mean killed your prophets. Actually, uh, the second part of what Stephen said in 7.52, I, I read to you 51. This is what he said in, in the next verse in Acts 7. Which of the prophets did your 
fathers not persecute. <laughs> In other words, answer is none of them. Right? I mean, excuse me, like all of them. Your, your grand, uh, uh, lineage persecuted all the prophets. And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one. That's what Stephen said. And that's what we find here. They killed your prophets. And what do you mean a prophet? A prophet is one who's supposed to go to tell someone good news of what God wants them to do. They killed them. (laughs) Who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. And they committed great blasphemies. Therefore you gave them into the hand of their enemies and made them suffer. And in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you. Oh, interesting. In the, in the time of their suffering, they cried out to the Lord. Because that's what happens often in our lives. He lets us go through a trial and we start suffering and we start shaking. And, and then and, and through the whole process, Lord, I can't do it anymore. I'll just give up. This is your, my life is yours. Therefore you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer again, suffering they cried out to you, and you heard them from heaven, and according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. But after they had rest, they did evil against you. That's sin. You might want to write the word sin. And you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. That's servitude. Yeah, when they turned and cried to you, that's supplication. You heard from heaven, and many times you delivered them according to your mercies. That's salvation. And that's what you call the cycle of sin. You sin, which then brings in servitude. You cry out to them, God, for, uh, which is supplication, and he rescues us. And, and just like he did the nation, I think it's seven or eight times in the book of Judges, you see this cycle. Sin, servitude, supplication, salvation. Sin, servitude, supplication, salvation. This, isn't that how it is in our own life? We get it, it gets easy. We get a little fat. I don't mean physically. I mean like we just feel like we're self-sufficient. And then we sin and there's servitude. But we go along for a while and after a while you cry out to the Lord and say, Lord, I don't want to live like this. I want to walk with you. I want to restore to me the joy of your, of your salvation and cry out to him supplication. What does he do? He restores. But because our hearts are evil, we get self-sufficient very quickly. And that's what happened to them. We learned that. And you warned them, verse 29, in order to turn them back to, their, to your law, yet they acted presumptuously and they did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules, which if... If a person does them, he shall live by them and turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey. Many years you bore with them. The book of Judges alone is 350 years about. Then you have the, the kings, David, or Solomon, David, uh, Saul, David, Solomon, and all their other, you know, the divided kingdom and stuff. Between the two of them, you're talking about 800 years. So when he says, verse 30, many years you bore with them, that means, yeah, year and year and century after century, you, you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophet, yet they would not give ear. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. And then that, what, what that is talking about is the Assyrians came in 722, and then the Babylonians, 586. Well, let's finish verse 31. Nevertheless, in your great mercy... You did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God, 
That, word, that first word, mercy, is also periodically translated the womb. I love that. Because isn't there any, is there no uh, safer, supposedly, supposed to be safer and tender place than the womb? And Israel was in the womb, as it were, of God. He was protecting them. Oh, he would chase them, he would discipline them, he would punish them. But when it was all said and done, he, he did not forsake them. Now we turn to the final section, the plea for pity. This brings us right up to the present with Nehemiah. Now therefore our God, the great, the mighty, the awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardships seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people since the time of the kings of Assyria. Don't, don't look at that as little, yet you have been righteous in all. See, they, they vindicate God. They exonerate God. No, you're righteous. For you have dealt faithfully. We have acted wickedly. Or maybe your word is deceitful. <clears throat> See, there's no culpability on your side. And boy, if you want to get revival, that's how you have to look at God. It was our problem. We walked away. You didn't. You've, been, you've remained faithful to us. Our kings, our princes, our priests, our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments or warnings that you gave them. Even in their own kingdom, enjoying your, your great goodness that you gave them and in a large and rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. Behold, we are now slaves this day. And they were to Persia and the lands that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts. Behold, we are slaves and its rich yield goes to the king's. That's the taxes whom you have set before us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please, and we are in great distress. And then they they make the covenant, which we'll look at next week. Because of this, we're going to make a covenant to walk with you. What have we seen? Why don't you turn over to 1 Corinthians uh, 10 as I close. 1 Corinthians 10. I know we're out of time. I had forgotten that we were... Having announcement Sunday. <coughs> um, see, Corinthians 10 says three different verses that I think we should draw upon that you need to think about as we leave. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 11 says, Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written for, down for our instruction. And I'm going to give you three different words again in your outline. First of all, be attentive. Learn from the example of those who have gone before. In other words, the Israelites. What can we learn from the Israelites that I've been just telling you right now? First of all, this. For the Israelites, the blessing of God did not bring about an obedient heart. I think we need to learn that long and hard. The blessing of God did not bring about an obedient heart. And you may be experiencing the blessing of God. Maybe you say it just in the physical sense, but even in a lot of other ways. But that doesn't mean that your heart is necessarily obedient. And this is what may also happen. You may see that and just then assume, I'm walking with Jesus. And that's not true. Because God is gracious even to those who are wayward. So again, the blessing of God did not bring about an obedient heart. Number two, the majority of Israelites made an evil choice. 
If you, if you go back to verses 5, 6, 7, and 8, and 9, we find that they name specific sins. Sins of idolatry, immorality, sins of unbelief and lust. I like verse 10. It was the sin of complaining. And because of that, God judged a whole group of people, thousands. We need to learn from that. See, even though we go through the uh, histories, uh, Israelite history, Don't assume that the majority of them walk with Jesus. They didn't. Be careful because it's it's always in Scripture the remnant that ends up walking with God. The remnant. I want to be part of the remnant. Do you want to be part of the remnant? If you do, you've got to be a warrior because we live in an ungodly world. And then finally, their punishment should encourage our obedience. They were punished. You see that in verses 5 to 10. That should encourage us to be obedient. Yes, Lord, I don't want to be disobedient. I want to learn from them. It's kind of like the second child in a home. Many times the second child learns what the first child didn't originally, right? First child gets, you know, spanked and da-da-da and yelled at and whatever. And the second child is like, I'm not going to do that. Well, maybe their heart's been changed, maybe not. We should learn from the first child in the sense of Israel. God is faithful, but he's also faithful to chasten. Number two, be on guard. Verse 12 says this, Therefore, let, any, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Be on guard. Don't get proud. Don't think that you can get away with sin. Because if there's any lesson in all of Old Testament is you cannot get away with sin. God is faithful. And if you're one of his, he will chasten. You can't escape God's chastening hand. And sometimes we commit the same sin and not say there's sin. Like, I'll go back to that one. Complaining, murmuring. And yet, we see in Israel that they were judged harshly for that. So, be attentive, be on guard, and finally, be assured that you can have victory. Verse 13, no temptation has overtaken you, but is common to man. It's all common to man. It's common to Israel, common to us. But what? What's the next one? God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your able. But would the the temptation provide a way of escape that you may be able to? And you know what? God is faithful. And verse 13 is the very pinnacle of that passage in 1 Corinthians 10. Yeah. Don't get haughty. Learn from Israel. Know that you're going to go through uh, common uh, temptations and trials. The things you're going through, other people have gone through. Thousands of other people have gone through a but. And you're going like this. You're going like, is there any hope? Is there any hope? I mean, do I have to be like Israel? No. Why? God is faithful. That's exactly what we've been looking at. The whole, the whole message is God is faithful. God, you were faithful as a creator. You were a preserver. You called out Abraham. You, you gave a land to the people, but they. Oh, you were still merciful. You were gracious and every, and but they didn't do it. And you still worked with them and you still, but they And I walk away very encouraged knowing, you know what, I can run this race well. Not because Israel failed, but because God is in control. And I trust that you will take the example of Israel and say, that's not what I want to do. I want to be faithful to God. I want to be sensitive to His Spirit. And what He wants in my life, I will do. Learn the lesson of what Israel didn't learn. But in the end, He never forsook them. And He'll never forsake you. Let's stand as we worship.